0: Hello everyone, you're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Coming up in this episode of Night's History Cast, I attended the 2023 UCF Student Scholar Symposium, which is the biggest research event of the year here at UCF. It provides an opportunity for graduate and undergraduate students to present their research and creative scholarship in a poster format, to the entire UCF community um, during Student Research Week. So I attended the event, which took place at the end of March, and I spoke with every poster that had to do with history. Whether the student was a history uh, major or not, I spoke with them. If their topic had anything to do with history, it was fair game with me. So I want to give a special shout out and introduce just by name all the people that I interviewed, all the students that I interviewed um, during this great event. So Marina Montes-Colon, Julia Condes, Glenn Ritchie III, Cameron Garrow, Jacqueline Hauser, Johan Rehm and Sarah Boy. Those seven individuals were kind enough to to take some time out of a very, you know, a little bit nerve-wracking, anxious day because... I I've also been a part of this this poster event um as a researcher and to present that day to to two judges and so it's a very it's an exciting experience but it's definitely a little bit nerve-wracking so the fact that these seven individuals were so kind to me to take some time for me to talk to them I I really appreciate it. So it's a fun one. Every segment it's it's something completely different and that's the beauty of history. So if you see a specific history research project that interests you And you just want to go straight into that segment. There will be timestamps in the description of this episode alongside their name and and the title of of their research. So enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello everyone, this is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have with me here
1: Marina Montes-Colon on my poster, but I uh, was recently married, so now it's Marina Foxhart.
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Did not know that. Um, Marina, can you please uh, tell the audience what the title of your research project is and give us an overall abstract of it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Las Floriqueñas uh, is newly titled, An Interdisciplinary Cultural Approach to Preserving Puerto Rican Women's Oral Histories. And it's about it looks like a dual thing. I plan on collecting women's oral histories um, and employing a more culturally based way of collecting these oral histories, which I call cafecito con pan method. But it's something that almost everybody knows about. And I'm and even outside the Hispanic culture, right? People go out for coffee and catch up. It's just a way that I'm hoping will cultivate or like encourage um, like a familiar space, but also somewhere where people feel comfortable speaking on some of the more vulnerable parts of their life stories, so.
0: For sure. So your project is very interdisciplinary, which makes it more dynamic in my opinion. But can you talk to us a little bit about that historical integration um, element of your research project?
1: Yes. So um, throughout my internships, I've learned that there's just so much more to cover in history, right? Um, and a term that I recently uh, heard was under recognition, right? And And it's really just how many of our stories just go without being told or being integrated into the larger narrative of the United States, um, despite the fact that we've been here for generations um, and contributed um, significantly to the uh, progress of history. Um, And so the historical integration is just wanting to speak on these stories, but as part of the larger narrative of how do we fit into the history of the United States or the local history of Central Florida. Um, Because something that I think academically we're all facing is a moment of trying to correct erasure and bring visibility to those who have gone under the radar just because of systemic issues.
0: For sure. 100%. Talk to us a little bit about the four life pillars. Was that something that you chose to do or was that something that came up naturally in your research? Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: So I call it four life pillars uh, because it wasn't necessarily titled that way or like given like uh, like a group name, but I got this from um, Edna Agosta Belens, the Puerto Rican woman from 1979. And uh, the book, is a collection of different um, research articles that came together and it was, I consider it like the preliminary uh, collection of of, uh, research on Puerto Rican women in and out of the United States. Um, And really what they came to a conclusion about, or like one conclusion that they came to is that Puerto Rican women at some point in history, especially after, U.S. industrialization kind of took on more responsibilities, and then, and then there was this challenge of balancing them all, which I believe still exists today because I see it in myself and the women in my family. But that, uh, you know, culturally, we're taught about the home, domestic life, and being leaders of the home. But then, uh, education um, and labor became really important aspects. Plus contributing to community so i see education labor home and family and community as um these four pillars of life that puerto rican women are not just expected from the outside but uh, from within the culture to balance Um, and then they explained that it seems like for the puerto rican woman there is no sacrifice of either of, of any of those things right it's Always wanting to participate in all of them, wanting our financial autonomy, wanting to be educated um, and have opportunities for ourselves, but also being there for our families, for our neighborhoods, um, and making sure that it's all held down domestically. Right? Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, so, oral histories, as you mentioned, the the Compan method um, was something like was a very significant portion of your methodology. What was that experience like of doing oral histories with the people that you got the chance to interview? Um, One of the things that I like a lot about history and arguably arguably why I do podcasting is because it's kind of a form of oral history and it allows the, the players and the participants to be more active in the conversation. So what was your experience like doing the oral histories?
1: So I've only gotten to conduct one so far. And what I'm learning is that I need to observe more sure. e- just to deconstruct them. So if I want to have this new methodology, I just found that I had a difficulty mediating the conversation um, and just like bringing it back to the center, right? And I just think that I need to observe more of the standard to be able to incorporate this sort of blueprint into the deconstructed and reconstructed method of of informal and even like more inserted, right? So the, part, so the interviewer is now mm-hmm. more involved in the process because the hope is that there's conversation rather than a one-way interrogation.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For and
1: sure. that definitely leads to some conflict. Mm-hmm. And so that is what I'm learning now is that there's definitely gonna be um, some restructuring going on at my end.
0: For sure. I know that's an interesting point that you bring up because oftentimes I try to do this a lot, too, is that, you know, with with podcasting, I don't like the interrogation style. I like it for it to be more uh, a conversation because that's more natural to the human ear and to the human mind. So Mm -hmm. I definitely understand your your perspective on that. Um, You know, you have here in the poster looking ahead. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is the future of this project?
1: Yeah, so it can go many ways. Um. Las Ferriqueñas is just one star because it's one state, right? But the diaspora is so large, so wide-ranging. Um, and every state of the United States has its own culture in a way, right and lifestyle and way of being. And so Puerto Ricans living there have adapted differently. And so what does that look like too? And so even though I'm starting in Central Florida, I'd like to explore other uh, areas of Florida and then beyond the state as well and even beyond the perspective of women um, the only reason i'm focusing on women right now is because i mean i'm a woman and Mm -hmm. um, i do believe that women and all gender perspectives are unique and so i definitely want to follow this line uh, for right now but um, like i say geographically and and demographically is how i would like to expand
0: i think that's a natural step ahead for this project besides you know, the obvious reasons of you being here in Central Florida for the most part. What other reasonings went behind you situating this research project in Central Florida?
1: So we have a suburban kind of uh, neighborhood economy. And everything I've ever seen about Puerto Ricans in the media has always been uh, in an urban setting, in a city setting. Mm-hmm. And I just could not relate to those challenges um, because I've always lived in suburbia and I never saw other Puerto Ricans or many Latinos represented um, like in a suburban setting growing up in one having to like negotiate culture in that way and so that really inspired me plus I grew up in Central Florida and even though I was not within the Like the Kissimmee area or the Osceola area, where it's very concentrated of Puerto Ricans. Right. Um, You know, from asking my cousins and stuff who did grow up there, there's, you would not believe how much we are absent from, you know, the history books and the history lessons. And it was easy to believe when I, you know, living in Windermere because it's so far and detached. But uh, in Osceola, you think that they, would have more to say and teach about it, and they don't. And so I thought, um, you know, besides the curricula, also institutions uh, tend to homogenize us with the rest of the Latin community, which is understandable. But at the same time, there's areas that are so concentrated that you can do, you can focus on different parts of the Hispanic community 100%. and really cover deeply. Yeah,
0: 100 yeah, percent agree. Um, my final question for you, Mariana, you've been so great. Is talk, tell us, talk to us a little bit about the title of uh, of your article, the, the very unique title. What was the inspiration of you of you getting that? I mentioned to you off mic before we started recording how it's a very unique title. I I like it very much and it rolls off the tongue nicely. So talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So the first time that I found a word like a name like that that was like a a combination, and I was like. Wow, okay, someone has a word, a name for us. It was Jorge Duane's, uh like, report, I think it was 2004, 2006, and um, he did it with Felix Matos Rodriguez, and they had said something like, they had said Orlando Ricans in it, and uh, uh, Floricans, and, like, um, Mickey Ricans. They said <laughs> that, and I was like, wow, like, I didn't even know... We had something like or someone was trying to work with a, a community name and then I was like uh, as my research started going along I, I revisited that in my head and I was like Oh, floriqueñas, you know? Well, it was Florriqueñas, but then I changed it up to floriqueñas uh, with the help of Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez, who's great with stylism. So he was yes. like, does not sound good when you say it out loud. I'm like, you're right. Um, <laughs> and so that's how Las Floriqueñas came to be. Um, it's just Florida and Puerto Riqueñas together.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you, Marina for taking the time out of your very busy day here at the symposium to talk with me a little bit about your research project. I really appreciate it and good luck moving forward.
1: Thank you so much for having me!
0: Hello everyone this is Sebastian Garcia from Nights History Cast and I have with me here
2: Julia Condes.
0: Hello Julia. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your Poster presentation by giving the title and a brief introduction.
2: Yes, so my poster presentation is entitled Juan de Pareja, The Portrait That Preceded Freedom. And it focuses on a 17th century portrait by the artist Velázquez of uh, Juan de Pareja, who was his then slave during the time that he painted this portrait, he actually signed the manumission that would grant Baraja his freedom four years later, and Baraja went on to have a career as an artist himself. So through my research, I came to the conclusion, um, as opposed to what some previous scholarships suggest, uh, that Velazquez, in painting this portrait, legitimized Baraja, which would create opportunities for but I had once he was free to be able to pursue and flourish in his own career.
0: What was the inspiration behind this research project? Like what made you decide to pursue it?
2: So we actually briefly covered Velazquez in a Baroque art class that I took last semester and just seeing this portrait really stood out to me. I found there was such a deep humanity in his gaze, the the figure's gaze, and a luminosity in his features. And I wanted to learn more about who this person was because I'd never seen a portrait like this of a black person you know, from the year 1650 and portrayed in such a noble way. And just looking at the painting, you would never know that he is someone who legally doesn't belong to himself. And so I wanted to learn more about what the story was there between the artist and the subject.
0: For sure. Art history is such a fascinating subject Me, for me personally. Um, it combines something as beautiful as art with something, in my opinion, as beautiful as history. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about the methodology you do as uh, an art historian.
2: Absolutely. So in looking at this painting, I use several different techniques of art analysis. So iconographical research, looking at the story behind the image, formalist research, so looking at the actual composition of the painting, and contextual analyses, so looking at things like gender, race, class, um, at this time and you know looking specifically at 16th and 17th century Spain in relation to its back black population and I also took into account post-colonial theory and certain perspectives regarding the racial other in society which really informed the direction that I took with this.
0: So right here so far our listeners could visualize you have a timeline in the bottom of your poster can you talk to us a little bit about the timeline itself and why you included it?
2: Yes, so I think the timeline gives you a more streamlined idea of how each uh, image relates to the history of the time. So I start the timeline with 1475, earliest documents of the existence of slavery in Spain, and in 1599, century later, Velázquez the painter is born, uh, almost 10 years after that, but I ha- the subject is born, and I kind of walk you through uh, you know, the lives of these people as it intertwines with Spain. In the 16th century, I also have a point here, black people are generally organized into two categories, negros ladinos and negros postales. So that also informs how they were viewed in the society that Breja and Velazquez were born into. Well,
0: what are some of the most challenging things about this research project specifically that you experienced, but also some of the methodologies that come with art history?
2: So what was a bit challenging was, you know, this was so many centuries ago, it's difficult to find documentation uh, that says, you know, something like, I painted this portrait because, you know, X, Y, Z. And so you really have to examine, um, you know, the lives that these people led and the work that Velasquez produced outside of this portrait as well. And create the you know find find the through line yourself and in art history you know people bring in their own opinions and beliefs and so if you find that the economic reasons for painting this portrait are more compelling that's going to have you you know you're totally going to push this sideline other reasons and what i found to be most compelling here were you know the the race and class uh features that that came into it.
0: What what else were some compelling findings or interesting perspectives that you found doing this research project?
2: So another interesting perspective Uh, and findings that I had were, I also looked at a, a piece by Manet, which was painted about 200 years after the Velazquez painting, and Manet was an impressionist. The impressionists were very much informed by Velazquez, and Manet himself referred to Velazquez as the painter of painters. So I studied this portrait that Manet did of Lore, who is believed to be the model for the black maid in Manet's Olympia, and looking at this painting, you know it's not very attractive her skin tone in her face it totally blends into the background you can hardly see her eyes it's a totally different color than her decolletage and there's more um, detail paid attention really to the the wrap on her head she's not a real person when right. you look at her and there's no technique and there's no what Darcy Grimaldo Grigsby, who wrote about this portrait, refers to as pictorial intimacy with the subject. And when you look at the portrait of Berta, all you see is this pictorial intimacy that Velázquez has established with his subject.
0: And you know, what you just said really, like, is really fascinating. And what other modes of analysis do you personally go through when you're trying to analyze a painting like the one you just said?
2: Yeah. So. Like I mentioned, I have been looking more at post colonial theory. So, looking at how modes of imperialism have affected people subjected under it, and looking at the racial other in art, I think, you know, art is always subjective, and it's almost always a primary source. So that was definitely something that I was taking into account. And I am new to this field. This is my second semester at UCF mm-hmm. and as an art history student. Nice. So it just has been a really amazing learning experience, you know, learning how to, um, you know, look into the context of work and how to apply that reasonably to what I'm studying.
0: That's nice to hear. Well, clearly you've been successful in these first two semesters being I um, hear at the 2023 UCF Symposium. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, what other, you know, whether it's with, with this specific research project, but what other future ideas you have um, in this discipline of art history that you want to pursue?
2: Yeah, so it's there's just it's so hard to pick something out that right. I'm like, I want to focus on this. But like I said, learning about the racial other, the societal other—you know—it's—it's it's something that is very relatable to me and and to many people. Um, you know, as as globalization has occurred over centuries, so many people feel displaced or removed from their history and want to reconnect to that and history is, you know, it's often said it's written by the victors. And so I think to take different perspectives and apply it to the artwork of the past allows us to, you know, open up new perspectives and to learn more about ourselves and to learn more about our history. And doing this project, I think, also reminds us that art isn't inaccessible and it isn't inauthentic and these are real people who lived. And when you look at the painting of Beraja, you know, you can imagine the space between the artist and the subject. And you begin to wonder, you know, how close or how far apart that space was. And there are whole lives that existed within that space right there.
0: Well said. Well, thank you, Julia, for taking the time out of your busy day here at the symposium to talk to me and to share your your work um, with the audience of Night's History Cast. Night's History Cast is very, it's an open-ended history podcast. And, you know, in my time doing this job, I haven't had any um, art historian or art history subjects. So you're the first. So I really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here... My name is Glenn Ritchie III, and I am from the College of English. Um, Hello, Glenn. So, talk to us a little bit about your research project here by starting off with your title of the project and and a brief background. Certainly, um, I should correct
3: myself. I'm from the Department of <laughs> English. Um, it, it, it's it's been a lot to lead up to this yes. moment, so I'm a little little out of it. For for um, for
0: the listeners, we're at the end of session one, so give give Glenn a break. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a long session. <laughs> yeah,
3: thank you for your patience. Um, yeah, for sure. So the title of my poster is "Ancient Defenders in the Modern Body Politic:
0: The Ulster Cycle's Boy and Man Heroes."
3: And um, what was the second part to that question?
0: Uh, give us a brief background. Well, well first, let's actually start with um, the inspiration for this research project. What inspired you to really start pursuing this methodology? I'm glad you asked. Um, on
3: the form for a symposium, there is a distinction that they uh, place in one of the fields of does the, co- does the project have like a personal... Uh-huh. Um, you know, just like a personal sentiment. Right. That's how I processed it, at least. Um, it's um, my, my grandmother was a first-generation Irish-American. Mm-hmm. Um, she tried to teach us about um, the history and um, the stories and everything like that. But as children, we just didn't really listen to it. I reconnected through this work during um, the midpoint of my undergrad career and what inspired this poster presentation this research work was coming across a mural from a paramilitary group in the north of ireland in a town called belfast Um, and the mural features an irish mythological hero named Cook holland who is represented by both the loyalist communities uh, those who are loyal to the British and the Republican communities who are loyal to the nation of Ireland. And um, the mural that I saw states Cuchulain, ancient defender of Ulster from Irish attacks over 2,000 years ago. So that really led into more history based research into how these murals function, uh, what are the motivations for these murals, and how they are received by people not only in the community but abroad.
0: I'm glad you, you 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 brought up the history-based research, because as I was just telling you off mic, um, right before we started recording, how when I came across your project, it's probably one of the more interdisciplinary ones at this poster session, at least you have not only within your department of English and the rhetoric element, but you have the historical analysis and element. You even have a bit of like cultural studies and art studies, if, if you will, um, which makes in my opinion, your project way more dynamic and more, Thank you. S- more powerful. So, but let's talk to me first about the history of of this subject, particularly <laughs> what um, drew you in most into saying, okay, I want to investigate that more.
3: Yeah. Um, hmm. That was a great question. What led me to investigating it more, specifically with the murals, was learning about the historical connection between the Irish Republican Army and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And um, I became interested in this because I have a friend who's from Palestine, and it just became a topic of discussion amongst awesome. us one day. So from the literary sense, I'm interested in post-colonial Ireland, and um, there's a lot of overlap with uh, Palestinian studies in that, in that, in that pocket. Now, where my work developed a more interdisciplinary bent um, just comes from my minor in medieval studies. Um, They encourage you to take a variety of classes. And I split my time in that minor between the English department and between the history department. And I really think that once you get into medievalism, you almost... It's you become interdisciplinary, not just by necessity, but because the material is so fascinating. And as you're reading literature, the literature, if you're looking at a manuscript, for instance, is art within itself, right? So it invites that speculative quality that I would have learned in like an art appreciation history or an art appreciation course in my first uh, few years of university,
0: a couple of years of university. Lee said, well said. Okay. Walk, walk with us a little bit um, the methodology mm-hmm. of your research project. So what? how did you, for lack of a better term, attack this question that you wanted to investigate?
3: Yeah, um, that is one of my favorite questions to answer. Um, so I've done all this reading, right? And um, I've started looking at images. And I'm currently working on honors undergrad thesis where this presentation here is more or less... A section of a chapter of my thesis. So, this is the culmination of about roughly two years of academic and independent studies. Now, um, my methodology came from wanting to maintain a sensitivity because even though I have this. ancestral cultural relationship i didn't grow up in belfast or ireland and um it's easy for people to romanticize a lot of these images and a lot of this literature so with that said um i applied for a research grant um i was already planning to go back to ireland i went over the summer for research for another project that i presented then um during the summer semester and um my goal this time was to speak with people who work in public history, mm-hmm. um, and the goal of that was to see if how I'm processing these images and the stories that are affiliated with them, am I processing them in a respectful way? Am I am I am I handling the, these issues with nuance and with the kind of sensitivity that you really need to you really need to analyze with? Um, with care, because, you know, we talk about post-colonialism and we think um, largely about the Falls Road in in, uh, Belfast and the Roman Catholic Republican community there. Um, But on the other end of that, the loyalists who are largely um, affiliated with Protestantism, they have this interesting um, dilemma that i've just shorthand described to people as they're too british to be irish and they're too irish to be british and they feel forgotten in the wake of that Mm -hmm. so really the colonial situation affects these communities just as much as it affects the um the occupied communities as i would say
0: did you because i'm reading here in your poster that you performed some interviews in ireland correct um talk to us a little bit about that experience how how'd it go of course. So the basic
3: questions that I posed were, how does Irish mythology affect the culture? How does it affect you? And what does it mean to you? And finally, if there's anything that people wanted to elaborate on, I just wanted to give them an open forum to, you know, just go off on it. Um, as I'm sure you know, it more information is better. Yes, 100%. So um, my first interview was by happenstance um okay. i landed in london because it is cheaper to fly into london yes. um and you can get over to ireland for about uh 30 pound yeah. on a good flight that's um, fair yeah so, that's totally fair um so um i was speaking with a man who was born in scotland mm-hmm. his name is b and um you know I I know him kind of already. He's an artist um, that has worked in the area forever. He owns a tower in the north of Ireland, actually, that he's converted into an artist residency. So, you know, we met up and had breakfast just to kind of chat. I'm a Huge fan of his work, so it was like a, it was a great experience. And he asked me, "Well, what are you doing here this time?" Yeah. Uh, and um, I started going into it, just kind of how I'm interested in the representation of masculinity in these, uh, in the depictions from translated literature, and then adapted into murals and other artworks. So as I started talking about this, he sort of kind of nodded along and said, "You know what? Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends who are in the IRA." Um, specifically during the 80s at what some might call the height of the troubles, which was the major conflict over there. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, it's my understanding that masculinity and the competitive spirit had a lot to do with these young men choosing to take up arms no matter which side they were on. Um, it was a it was a matter of one-upsmanship. And where I was able to relate that um, to the literature is there's this motif in... Um, Old Irish literature called the Kredmir, um which is essentially a heroic boasting competition. And the token of honor is the choice cut of meat at a feast. So um, you kind of notice that quality of boasting and, um, you know, really establishing status. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find through a lot of these representations. Um, then, so after that is when my formal kind of um, collection began. I took a tour of the murals in uh, the Protestant community, uh, or what they call the Protestant community some, Mm -hmm. um, of the Shankill Road, and then the Falls Road. So I tried speaking more in depth with a man named M, who comes from the Shankill Road. And when I asked questions about Kukulun and all these things, um, despite this loyalist image that we kind of discussed at the outset, he did not really want to address it at all um, I, I asked only twice right. you know, but the second time he was sure to mention uh, a different story from the Ulster cycle Which essentially I'll save the details here but the story represents the establishment of Ulster as a distinct nation from Irish uh, the from the Irish and um that was a little discouraging but it was very telling right right? for sure um and so by contrast um jay who leads the other part of the tour um in the what someone called the roman catholic republican community um he was like oh my gosh i wish we weren't doing the walking tour i would have driven you around to all these murals if you did the the taxi tour right which is you know uh i had i known right but what he had to say about was well you know my experience of is i don't have an academic understanding of these stories i just know them from childhood and how they were shared to us in the nationalistic spirit and for my grandkids and those who will come after my grandkids my hope is that we can step away from the overt politicization of these stories and just share them as stories right um that becomes a little problematic in yeah. the english field because right. we do that whole semiotic thing but i appreciate the spirit of it for sure and um i wanted to compare these two um these two stories um, to the third person that i came across a man named a who helps out with a tour in dublin on mythology and um he was seemingly far more positive about how these stories are used in the nationalistic spirit um just sort of in that yes, our heroes um, drove out the British and we honor them and da-da-da. It was was a lot more nuanced than that because he really focused on his disappointment that for, in the ancient context that Ireland was a largely matriarchal society, Mm -hmm. there was not much representation of women. Um, the the principal uh, woman represented throughout Dublin uh, in sculptures is Aaron, who is the matriarchal embodiment of the spirit of Ireland. Um, those are about 18 sculptures compared to the surplus of representations of men and uh, politicians and all of that. And that is to say that otherwise, and even in the north of Ireland, I didn't note much of... Uh, feminine presence or the presence of women in these representations so really my conclusion from all of this was that it it is a far more is a far more expansive idea topic than we would have ever or i would have ever Considered, right, um, Because even within the same communities, just having chats at local eateries, there's differing perspectives, differing perspectives yeah. there's people who are a little more familiar with these stories, mm-hmm. people who might not be as familiar. And the the big takeaway that I had from being in the Republic of Ireland was, you know, noting that. These All of these matters are still commodity. Um, for instance, I bought a hand towel with Ku embroidered on it, as well as a small statue from the GPO gift shop. That's the general post office of Ireland where the Easter Rising of 1916 took place. Um, but he's also the theme of a roller coaster in Ireland's only theme park. So... But that doesn't detract from these things because right. it has all of this. The the like I said, the semiotic quality is what has given these stories longevity. And to that point, A has a lot of love for it, but hopes that this trend of reevaluating the femininity of these stories and the women in Irish history and Irish literature keeps on going on the rise.
0: For sure, and even like with how you mentioned with Jay that he didn't have um, much of an academic viewpoint of the subject that's still a worthwhile perspective to investigate that of course yeah it still tells a story and yes. tells a phenomenon so it's interesting and um i'm glad you mentioned that because, because i feel like oftentimes um it gets lost in academia especially that you know if it's not an academic perspective it's not you know significant and that's certainly, not certainly true so I'm, I'm glad you you asked that I have two more questions for you. The first one's a two-parter, so technically three. (laughs) Um, So my two-parter, number one, out of all the complementary but as as well as contrasting elements in your research, so the historical perspective, the the rhetoric perspective, like the literature perspective, even the artistic cultural perspective, which one was A, your favorite... To investigate and be the the, which one was the most challenging to really unravel.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, I think I have a pretty um, a pretty singular response um, for once. Uh, (laughs) You know the the um, the thing that was kind of the hardest to unpack and the thing that I looked forward to the most was really unpacking the the political drive yeah. in these i have i've told friends and family members that had i not landed in um literary studies i probably would have gone into political science mm-hmm. and um you know i try to work with those topics in kind and that's kind of what drove me to a lot of history right as well um so i couldn't have been prepared really um for how withholding um, some people were of information who I spoke to. Um, the only people who made it onto this presentation are the people who consented to be a part right, of the presentation right. and the people who had a more formalized um, a more formalized thing to say right, about right. it. Um, so, you know, but that is all to say, I'm, I'm a huge nerd <laughs> for all of it. And, uh, well, I'm but, here for the nerds, man. Yeah. I'm with you. the 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 politics of it all is really the most interesting to me because a lot of that is
0: what drove my family to immigrate over um, in the mid 20th century of course of course Uh, my final question for you glenn is um just talk to us a little bit about you know some of the directions you want this research to go in the future
3: Oh, yeah. Um, I was just accepted into UCF's MA. Congratulations. In, thank you. I'm so excited um, in literary, cultural, and textual studies. Um, as I note here, this work contributes to a part of my honors undergrad thesis, um, but my work is leading me to further explore adaptation and paratextuality beyond the Ulster cycle and beyond Kuchulin. Um This includes comparative studies of wealth mythology, Arthurian literature, and the adaptations, I'm sorry, the adaptations of stories across media. For instance, um, you know, I'm starting to look at graphic novels more to kind of really bring in that image-based literary context. Um, and, yeah, just see where it goes
0: from there. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Glenn, for taking the time out of your busy day here at the 2023 UCF Student Scholar Symposium. Uh, we even stayed a little bit over. As yeah. probably the listeners could tell as the background noise has probably decreased a little bit. but That um, happens with good conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ex- exactly. Well said. So thank you so much, Glenn. I really appreciate oh, it. I appreciate you. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knights History Cast and I have with me here... Hi, my name is Cameron Garrow. Hello Cameron, so talk to us a little bit about your research project here by starting off with the title of the project and a brief overview slash background. Sure,
4: uh, so the title of my project here today is Protection or Control, the History and Impact of the Major Crimes Act on Native Americans. Uh, So what this focuses on primarily is, of course, the Major Crimes Act of 1885, uh, which kind of grants uh, federal courts exclusive jurisdiction on certain cases involving Native American defendants. So if a Native American defendant, uh, A, commits one of the crimes listed in the act, B, on tribal land, or the legal term would be Indian country, uh, then their their case is heard in uh, federal court rather than state court. So, while this was originally passed as a method of protecting Native Americans, it's kind of aged past that point where it's gotten to be really impractical in its enforcement uh, due to a lot of different legal complications that it's been taking over. So um, for some background, uh, before the Major Crimes Act was passed in 1885, the primary criminal statute affecting Native American defendants was the General Crimes Act of 1817. And that didn't grant exclusive jurisdiction like the Major Crimes Act later did, but it granted concurrent jurisdiction to state and federal courts, meaning cases could be heard in either one. Uh, it didn't have any say on what to do for native on native crimes, like the Major Crimes Act later did. Uh, so that's why that was felt to be needed
0: later on. What was the your inspiration behind um, investigating this research topic So one of the most
4: recent cases involving the Major Crimes Act occurred in 2020, uh, McGirt v. Oklahoma, where basically a defendant uh, argued that his case should have been heard in federal court, not state court like it was, because his arrest was inside of Indian country, the tribal borders. Uh, And he cited a treaty from 1833 and another one from 1856, establishing that one, basically about... Half of the landmass in Oklahoma was recognized as Indian country under this treaty, uh, and the second treaty established that only an act from Congress directly could fix those borders again, rearrange them, change them at all. Uh, meaning that those are still the borders today. So, what this hap- when this happened, the federal courts in Oklahoma suddenly got overflowed. They went from about. 200, 250 cases, somewhere in that range to over 900 in the span of a year. So over a 300% increase in their court load. So what happened after that is a lot of cases got thrown out because statutes of limitations expired. Uh, Witnesses died. Evidence got lost in the transfer from courthouse to courthouse. Uh, And it's become this whole complication that's still going on today.
0: Yeah. I see here in your poster in the bottom paragraph that, you know, this What was sort of resolved in 2020 with McGritt versus Oklahoma, you said here, quote, was somewhat reduced in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, which was last year. So can you talk to us a little bit about this continuing, you know, story, essentially? Absolutely. So uh, the Castro Huerta decision uh, came in the summer of
4: 2022, actually after I started researching this topic. And the Supreme Court had so up until this point they'd kind of forgotten about the General Crimes Act from 1817 it hadn't been cited that often since the Major Crimes Act had been passed in 1885 uh, but here they kind of rediscovered it it was still applicable and their decision in Castro Herta was if a case meets these circumstances if it is a non-native defendant committing a crime against a Native American victim then those are still applicable to concurrent jurisdiction. They can be tried in either federal court or state court. So yes, it did take some of the caseloads away from the federal courts and kind of mitigate some of those damages. The negative side of it is now this decision affects the entire country and all 560 plus native tribes across Mm -hmm. it. Uh, And it kind of puts native defendants or native victims, sorry, at a new legal disadvantage. So, like, let's say I am a Native American uh, and you are not, okay. hypothetically. If I were to attack you uh-huh. within the borders of Indian country, uh-huh. I'd be tried in federal court. Uh, and you, if you were to do the same to me, you'd be tried in state court. Mm. So the issue there uh, harkens back to a case from the 1970s called US v. Antelope, okay. where uh, defendants cited that if they were to be tried in Idaho state court, uh, as any non-native would, then additional uh, elements would be need to be met to prove that they were guilty. They would need to have proven uh, things like deliberation, uh, premeditation. So in, in essence, their conviction in federal court is easier to achieve mm. than it would be in state court. In state court yep. So back to that example of if I'm a native and you're not, if I were to attack you, uh-huh. it would be easier to sentence me since it'd be in federal court. Mm. If, you were to, if you were to attack me, it'd be more difficult to convict you in a state court. Got it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that example. Sometimes it's especially like, you know, I'm coming at this similar to the listeners. Um, of course, I didn't know your project beforehand. So coming those concrete examples really um, help conceptualize what you're trying to achieve here, what you have achieved here with this research project. Thank you. I took a history of, uh, of American law last semester. Mm-hmm. And one of the overarching themes of that class was this very complicated, very complex uh, situation duality between Native American and Amer- and US jurisdiction you know how did that I don't know if affects the right word but how did that influence your research you know going through all these specific uh court cases and seeing you know that that conundrum essentially
4: um it was very interesting because you kind of see a lot of contradictions over right, the years exactly yeah um like for example the fact that the general crimes act was just completely forgotten about after 1885 mm-hmm. only to suddenly reemerge in 2022 um it's a little weird like for example one of the cases that i haven't mentioned yet um in 1978 US v. wheeler uh it basically held that a Native American citizen could be tried in both tribal court and federal court without violating the double jeopardy clause mm-hmm. because tribal court is recognized as tribes acting as a separate sovereign from the U.S. It's like if we were to be arrested on uh, the border of two countries and be tried in both. Right. Uh, so not only does that create the issue of the Fifth Amendment kind of going against its intended use, yeah. it also goes against the wording of the General Crimes Act because people had forgotten about it at, th- at that point in time there's a clause in that act that actually bars uh, federal courts from trying or convicting Native citizens that had already gone through the tribal court proceedings, uh, which hasn't been cited up until this point just because everyone had forgotten about this law. So you kind of see things like that, where you see different acts that get ignored um, defining Native citizenship or Native sovereignty.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the word contradicting, because that's exactly what it was. I remember in the... One of the biggest lectures during that class that i just referred to was about native american law and you know by the end of that lecture that was kind of what was going through my head it's like wow that's like this constant like back and forth yeah
4: and that that's kind of why i titled this protection or control because right. it does go back and forth yeah um i mean the 2020 decision was intended to protect natives uh but the 2022 decision so while still kind of attempting to mitigate the problems that the protection caused it kind of takes back some of that protection as exactly. well they're kind of going back and forth it also is also worth noting that the 2020 case and the 2022 case were decided technically by a different supreme court because in between them was when uh, ruth bader ginsburg had passed away and right. been replaced by amy coney barrett
0: which is very influential in these decisions the right f- because the, the suddenly from
4: 2020 you have a more democratic leaning court right. and in 2022 and today now we have a more Re- republican leaning court right
0: exactly Talk to us a little bit about the what comes next section. So basically the Im- the historical impact of your research.
4: Yeah, sure thing. So I talked about this, the history and the impact. I also wanted to talk about the future, where we might right. go from here. So I think that three major steps are needed in order to, if not fully solve, at least partially resolve some of the issues that the law has caused. One being that more cross-deputization agreements are needed Um, and what that means is basically you can have officers who are commissioned in both state and tribal jurisdictions. So that way an officer doesn't have to worry about, oh, hey, did I just arrest a native within tribal borders that I don't have jurisdiction on? Do I have to let him go now and then call some other authority? Now they can make arrests without having to worry about that. Mm -hmm. They can kind of get the tribal or state court, uh, court process started quicker kind of lighten that load as well whether it's in Oklahoma or in other states now uh, we need more of those just for the sake of time and management Uh, Two, in order to meet those cross deputization agreements that number that we would need uh, more federal funding is required to increase the judicial productivity that we're going at not just for the cross-deputization agreements, but we also need more courthouses, especially in tribal lands in Oklahoma, for example. You suddenly have the borders of Indian country drastically expanded to the point where their tribal courthouses aren't enough to handle their caseloads either. Outside of federal, we, we need a lot more courthouses, uh, legal professionals, public defenders, the list can go on and on. Uh, But besides those two things, the one that is needed most is legislative change. We either need uh, an amendment or an update to the Major Crimes Act of 1885, Mm -hmm. or it needs to be repealed and replaced entirely with something that's much more practical to use. The law was passed over 140 years ago. It is more than starting to show its age in how it's being practically enforced.
0: Beautifully said, Cameron. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day here at the 2023 UCF Student Scholar Symposium. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knights History Cast, and I have with me here...
5: Jacqueline Hauser.
0: Hello, Jacqueline. So to start off, talk to us a little bit about Your inspiration for this project by first stating the title so our listeners could better understand the conversation.
5: Um, I am working on locating the original Bumper Missile Blockhouse for the Cape Canaveral Archaeological Mitigation Project or C-Camp for short.
0: (laughs) What was the, what kind of inspired you to to get this project starting to really investigate the topic?
5: Um, I'm a history major but I focus on both Florida and archaeology and so working out at cape canaveral to kind of find florida's specific history Mm -hmm. in the archaeological record just hit all of my interests and so that's why i decided to pursue that
0: so let's go into a little more specifics so talk to us about the background of this of the study so in
5: 1949 um before nasa existed um, the government was working on two phase missiles Mm -hmm. Um, and the two that we're focusing on are bumper seven and eight Um, The Bumper Missile Project actually started in New Mexico and after um, an issue where we lost a missile over the border into Juarez, Mm. they decided to find a safer place to shoot missiles. That's fair. (laughs) So Cape Canaveral was on the list and because if something goes rogue, it's over the ocean, they decided to give it a shot and that was Bumpers 8 and then 7.
0: So is it fair to say, this is me thinking right okay. now, I, I, you know, <laughs> off the cuff, but is it fair to say that this was kind of like this missile site was the precursor to this NASA? This is
5: absolutely the precursor okay. to NASA. that's awesome. This happened at launch pads one, two, three, and 4, um, specifically launch pad 3. If bumpers 8 and 7 were not successful, they would have moved on as far as locations go. Wow. So without bumper success, we wouldn't have Artemis being worked on right now. Wow. This is actually um, Blue Origin in the background of my site. So it's very much an active site because of what happened here in 1950.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. For the listeners, like, my, my jaw is hitting the floor <laughs> because, you know, I, I've been to Cape Canaveral before. I'm a huge NASA fan, like, in terms of their space history and the space right. program. And I have I mean, I granted, I went when I was a little bit younger, but I don't remember... B- the bumper missile being talked about so I'm absolutely fascinated. I was going
5: to say the they went off without a hitch when it was the long range proving missile ground and they moved on to Mercury and other things. As a matter of fact the launch pads that we're digging near now were actual emergency stationing for Mercury so it was no longer about launches then they just used that space for the ambulances and fire trucks to wait in case something happened with Mercury Wow! but we're specifically looking for what today would kind of be a mission control. Right. So then it was a temporary tar shack with the -the Mm state-of-the-art computer systems. (laughs) um, And missiles were important. So the blockhouse itself kind of got overlooked. It was never meant to be permanent they moved on to more permanent structures. And now with the uh, 75th anniversary of the bumper missiles coming up in 2025, we're trying to use the photographic and historical record um, to find it.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. We've narrowed it down
5: to about a 100 meter by 100 meter area, but we're talking about a three by three meter hut, essentially. So we're trying to find that needle in this haystack.
0: In the haystack, right, for sure. (laughs) um wow that's absolutely fascinating so how how so talk to me a little bit about the methodology like you know i'm, I'm very unfamiliar i'm a history major as well but i'm very unfamiliar with the anthropo- anthropology side of it so talk to me a little bit about that methodology
5: so we're in the process of phase one testing right now which can be a lot of things Um, survey, which would be where I take all of the historical photos and I kind of compare them to what's there now to narrow down the site. Um, We've worked a little bit with USF, who's done aerial testing there to kind of get rid of, if nothing showed up on their aerial testing, it's not likely I'm going to find anything in the ground. So I was able to use their information to not look there, not waste my time there. When we narrowed it down to our area, now we're doing what's called a shovel test pit. So we essentially dig every 10 meters, we dig two meters down and see what we find. Um, and so far we have found concrete, okay. we have found tar, which is interesting because it's a tar shack.
0: Right. Um,
5: we have found bundles of cables oh, that cool. may have run electricity move, right. to it. Um, So we're just going to keep going until we can find something solid. At the ground level, we have found essentially what looks like sandbags of concrete, which seems like nothing, but that's some of the stuff that they Mm, used to protect the building during launches.
0: Wow. And you you mentioned how in 2025 will be the 75th anniversary Mm -hmm. of the bumper missile site. So is that like the projected date you guys want to find it at we
5: are trying very hard i still i still have to get out with a metal detector um we're hoping to get it mowed down if you can see all of this shrub it's very tall and so we're hoping to get it all mowed down and do ground penetrating radar um but if we find it we're hoping that the sea camp project will excavate it next spring Okay. So, wish me luck. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) The
0: the most best of luck to this project because this is absolutely fascinating. And the fact that it it coincides well, hopefully, it coincides with the seventy fifth anniversary of its origin. I mean, it can't get any more neater than that. Um, What were what have been some of the most inspiring finds in this phase one testing that has really given you like hope? You know, I know you mentioned a a lot of them, but
5: it's really just. So I have poured through historical records slightly differently than a lot of the anthropology majors that I'm working arm-in-arm with uh-huh. because we look at things from a—they're they're more a science perspective right. than I'm a history perspective. Right. So I've used all of these things to kind of narrow it down, and I know people who are listening can't see, but my guess is that it's right here. And this green box is where we're finding the most promising stuff. Mm. So what's exciting to me is that there have been previous hypotheses about it being further away, maybe by the road or stuff. But all of my research and all of my background in history has kind of narrowed me down to here. And I'm seeing promising, it's too early to celebrate, Right? right, right, but right, 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 right. it's really exciting that where I told everybody, uh-huh. like, I think this is where it's at and I'm seeing things that could possibly support that, it's just invigorating, right? Like it-
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm, oh my god. It's exciting. It is, it's very much exciting. You got me all hyped up yeah. right now. I'm like, yes. You mentioned something in that answer that is um, sparking this next question. How does the, the practice, the discipline, the methodology of history help with anthropological projects like this one?
5: I think a lot of it is just that research, you know, we research Mm -hmm. for our study so I know what I'm looking for when I'm reading all of these things. If I were the one writing those papers or answering those questions, where would I be looking? And so when I get all of these stacks of stuff, I know the information I'm looking for and I can kind of hone into where it might be, uh, maybe differently than someone who's looking at aerial views or soil samples Mm -hmm. or the science of it both extremely helpful correct 100%. But, but it gives me a different perspective so then I can take the information to my more sciencely minded mm-hmm. cohort and be like what does this sound like to you does this look like it works to you and we can work together
0: yeah I definitely appreciate that the power of history but as well as the power of the, of the science well if
5: we find it it'll be on the historic the national historic site registry mm-hmm.
0: Ooh, yeah. that's, that's exciting <laughs> um Wow, this 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 has been a great conversation, I'm not even gonna lie, this is really interesting. Um, so from here till twenty twenty five, what's what's the timeline like? What's what's the what's the goal, what's the plan?
5: So the project himself the the cultural resource manager out at Space Force usually only does the digs in the spring because Florida heat is daunting right. and stuff. That makes sense. But he uses the off digging season to go over the research and the artifacts that we find and the getting permits that we need to further dig. And so it's not just that it'll stop until next spring. We'll do Mm -hmm. other stuff. We'll evaluate the artifacts we found. We'll keep it mowed so next year we don't have to go digging through cactus. Um, But so there's other information that can be gleaned until we get out there to actually dig again, which hopefully will be in the spring.
0: That sounds awesome. I've already
5: volunteered as crew chief because I want to see it through.
0: Of course, yeah. That totally makes sense. Well, I wish you the very, very, very best of luck, Jacqueline, in achieving this goal. This is super awesome. This is very exciting. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy day here at the UCF Student Symposium to talk to me about this awesome project. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much.
0: Hello everyone, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knights History
6: Cast and I have with me here uh, Jochen Riem, a graduate student in the history program at UCF and second year uh, and my mentor is Dr. Amelia Lyons. Awesome, hello Jochen, um, can you start with us,
0: can you start by saying the title of your research project and giving us a brief uh, background in terms of, you know, how did you come up with this research question, what was the inspiration?
6: Well thank you. Yes, uh, I'm glad I gladly do that. The title of the project is The Dreyfus Affair in the Alsacian Press. The timeline is 1906 to 1914. My field of studies is the Alsace, the borderland uh, between uh, north eastern um, France and southwestern Germany, and this particular uh, topic is about how the Dreyfus affair based upon the false accusation of the f- French army of the Alsacian Jew army captain Alfred Dreyfus how were the how was the resonance of that in the borderland of Alsace in, uh, after his exoneration in 1906
0: So who, who was Dreyfus specifically? Was he a uh Uh, a a leader in the military or who was he?
6: Uh, Alfred Dreyfus was a military captain, and he worked for the Deuxième Bureau, that was a secret service, and he was accused that he basically was submitting some secret information to the German Intelligence Bureau, and he was Alsacian, born in Alsace, but after Germany made Alsace the territory in 1871, he emigrated to France and became naturalized France. Part of his family stayed in the Alsace. So that is basically the background, again, very important for the affair itself was he was pardoned in 1899 and in 1906 he was exonerated went back into the military, French military, was promoted and fought in World War One wow. for the French military.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. So, the years 1906 to 1914 was a, a natural pick. It was something that you didn't really decide to look at, or was it something you decided to focus your research on these specific years?
6: Yes, uh, I want wanted to focus on the specific years, 1906. As I mentioned already, the exoneration mm-hmm. right. of Alfred Dreyfus. And I want to I want to examine how the Alsacian press and the diversified mm-hmm. Alsacian press already kind of politically through the conflict in the Alsace mm-hmm. identity conflict, cultural conflict, political conflict, how they explained the Dreyfus affair to the Alsacians because he was still born in Alsace But he also was an Alsacian Jew, which was a huge component at the height of anti-Semitism in France and in Germany.
0: Right. So, you know, a big part of history is methodology Mm -hmm. and how to actually do the research. Can you talk to us a little bit about your methodological process to conduct this research?
6: Yes, I gladly do that and um, what what I felt I need to do uh, with this topic is, first of all, bring the three cultures in, or basically two, which is France and Germany. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at the newspapers, the German newspapers and the French newspapers, to get a diversified basis for my argument. But also, there is a vast variety of uh, American scholarly work um, writing about the Dreyfus affair what was not intensively examined was so far the Alsatian press in that timeline how they uh, portrayed and depicted the Dreyfus affair and made it understood to the Alsatian population so basically diversified languages very important to see the different aspects but also I used Uh, archives, uh, French archives, Mm -hmm. very good German archives, and I had my mentor Amelia Lyons, Dr. Amelia Lyons who was always there for help. She is a French historian par excellence. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, indeed. How differing were those perspectives between the French media
6: and the German media in this affair? Well, this happened all in 1906, 1914. So, Alsace, was already kind of over 20 years uh, German territory. It was only territory, not a full-fledged German state. That's what Alsacians wanted to be, have autonomy, but be not independent belonging. That was the key. Mm. So the, the press basically was Part of the German press in the Alsace was part of the Germanization process to uh, try to assimilate the Alsacians towards Germany. The French papers, of course, France was bitter about losing the territory after 1871. Mm. That was a Prussian Franco War, right? And they wanted basically to have that territory back. Right. That's why I end in 1914 my examination because we starting the world war which was a completely different chapter.
0: And my final question for you is what were some of the major findings or the biggest takeaways from your research project?
6: The takeaways were first of all the that Dreyfus, Alfred Dreyfus, it was not really centrally about him. It was about Jewishness. It was about it was already researched from the gender viewpoint, mm, okay. from legal viewpoints, mm-hmm. and what I found interesting that the diversified. Press, which already had been diversified before the Dreyfus affair mm-hmm. because of the situation, the conflict in the Alsace. So I felt like it was not about really Alfred Dreyfus. And as you can see, two articles here yes, talking about at the same year, at the same day, Dreyfus is a traitor, but Dreyfus is innocent. Wow. No picture is shown of Dreyfus himself, only about the people who accused him and convicted him. And then when he is innocent, the people who defended him partly South Alsacians as well. But the pride, this is a French newspaper, a Republican newspaper, uh-huh. is unbroken saying vive l'armée, uh, long live the army, uh-huh. abale traitor uh, down with the traitors, has the same when he was innocent, there is still vive l'armée, le traître, and that means the... The pride of the military, uh-huh. of the French military, is unbroken. Although they falsely accused Alfred Dreyfus, who had to spend, by the way, five years on an island, and uh, on an island in South America, in prison mm-hmm. in a wow. kind of like metal shag.
0: Wow, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. I'm glad. You, I mean, it's a shame that the audience can't see the pictures as mm-hmm. an audio podcast. But I'm really glad you still mentioned it. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, um, Johing, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day here at the 2023 Student Scholar Symposium event. Um, I really appreciate it and best of luck moving forward.
6: I appreciate your interview, Sebastian. Good luck with everything. Thank
0: you. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have with me here...
7: Sarah miller Boy.
0: Hello, Sarah. So, Sarah's poster is titled "Southern Justice and the Cultural Legacy of the Civil War in Orlando," a very fascinating subject. So, Sarah, your poster is very uh, defined with its sections. So, let's let's structure this conversation based on that. So, first, before we get to the historical background, talk to me a little bit about your inspiration in doing this in th- this research.
7: So, back in 2018, I took a walking tour at Greenwood Cemetery with the former sexton Don Price. And during that tour, he told a story that really blew my mind and even more was that the crowd reacted in a way I didn't expect. Don explained that the graves of the Union veterans of the Civil War in the G.A.R. section at Greenwood were all vandalized. They were reversed and the headstones were made to face west instead of east. And he said that this, along with the theft of a cannonball off of the monument, um, this was considered southern justice by local mm. residents and that the they didn't win the war but they won the battle and this made everyone in the tour group laugh and right. it just blew my mind mm-hmm. that something like this could have happened and yeah. that it's funny because these are veterans of Ex- the united states of, of america course. and to disrespect them like that is just mind-blowing
0: i agree and you know you were explaining in the for the for the listeners to give them better context this is I listened to Sarah's presentation about three times. I was patiently waiting. She was doing a great job with other people here at the symposium, and so you were explaining how the turn of the cemetery to the west is could be an insidious, you know, effect. Yes. So explain it, that. For it could. Our so artists. in
7: Judeo-Christian tradition, typically graves will face east. The burials will face east, and the headstone inscriptions typically face east as well. Um, in this case, some of the headstones in the section do face east. But the majority, 63% of the headstones, have been reversed to face west, even if the burials appear to be east.
0: So besides that tour, what what other historical background and information did you you use to help you with your research?
7: Uh, Well, I looked at a lot of things. I conducted a few oral history interviews with some key players um, around Greenwood and the section. Um, People who might have had any idea about the story and whether it was true or not, um, because I wanted to prove or disprove, if I could, if this was true, were they actually vandalized. Um, I also looked at archives and virtual databases and I worked with police reports to try to establish if any other vandalism in the cemetery through its history was consistent with this. And it's not. It's a very unique situation.
0: Walk me through this timeline. I'm, I'm a big nerd for timelines. Oh, timelines I, are wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> timelines are awesome. So walk me through this timeline. So
7: Greenwood was established in 1888, and we had burials happening fairly soon after uh, in 1894 for the, the Grand Army of the Republic section. Um, but then in 1955, we have the last veteran of the GAR in Orlando die, and that was the last burial that is facing west. Mm. There's a span of time then, until 1962, where there are no burials happening. And then from 1962 forward, we have east-facing inscriptions. So we have a period from 1955 to 1962 that was my area of focus. I decided that's probably when, if this happened, it would have happened here. Because as far as Don Price knew, when he began in 2003, they had always been this way forever.
0: Okay. No one knew about it. Makes sense.
7: So it had to be in this period. So... In this period is a very interesting period for civil rights. We right. have Brown versus Board of Education, desegregation, renaming of schools like uh, Stonewall Jackson Middle here mm-hmm. in Orlando. These things are all happening in this period, and I found in 1961 that the city of Orlando began using prison labor to beautify Greenwood Cemetery. Okay, and basically what would happen is the Orange County prison camp would have a guard and six to seven prisoners every single day come to Greenwood and do maintenance there. They didn't have any hired maintenance workers by the city at that point. They were just using prison labor. So we have teams of people doing all of the moving. We had at that time, we had guards that were disproportionately white and prisoners who were disproportionately not. And I found connection to the man in charge of the prison camp with David Starr, who was the Orange County Sheriff for over 30 years, that was proven by the FBI to have ties to the Klan. Mm. So we find some white supremacist ties happening with a situation where they have means, possibly motive and opportunity to do this sort of vandalism if it was going to happen. I think it could have happened then and I think that was probably what would have happened. Right, for sure.
0: And so, after the 60s, what else happens, like, in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s? Right, so
7: Greenwood, they were still using prison labor through the 60s. Um, we have, through, until the 80s, we really have, that was that's when the 88 is the last burial in the section at all. So you kind of have, I think, almost a collective forgetting in this section because there wasn't a lot of things happening. Um, there was a Sons of Union veterans group here for a little while, but they disbanded in the early 2000s. Um, they did a cleanup event in 2006, And that is the last anyone's ever heard of anything. Um, That's actually the point which the cannonball was replaced with a bowling ball, Mm. which they confirmed they actually got up there and checked it for me (laughs) and pulled it off and went, yep, that's a bowling ball, and stuck it back on. Um, And we believe that actually was put up for their event in 2006, and it's been there since.
0: Since. And, you know, what were some of the, the biggest takeaways or conclusions from this research project?
7: Well, I think a big conclusion is that there's just so much out there that we haven't found yet. And I think Orlando, as a part of the South and as a part of that struggle between North versus South and after the Civil War, is just something that's still affecting us. Right. And maybe more than we realize. Yes.
0: I agree. Especially with, and, and with Florida specifically. It's so interesting. It's so complex because... Florida, if you cut it across the middle, it seems like two different states. Absolutely. The dynamic. So, Absolutely. you know, your title says cultural legacy of the Civil War in Orlando. So what what is that cultural legacy? And do you think that very distinct and contrasting differences between North and South Florida play into that cultural legacy
7: you know I haven't I haven't gotten a chance to really study North versus South Florida uh-huh. specifically but it, I definitely see that within Orlando right there's definitely a division between rebel versus Yankee yeah. even still and in memory is, and if you look at the debates that happened in 2017 over moving Johnny Reb mm-hmm. which is in the confederate section at Greenwood There is still a lot of contention happening over these topics, and it is definitely still something that is huge and impacts us today. And the arguments are just as fresh as they were.
0: What my final question for you, Sarah, you've been great. Is you know I, I see here you have future research. So what what are some ways you, if you do plan on, or just in general for for the historiography, where do you think? The future research should take place for this project Um,
7: well I'm right now I'm working with an anthropologist who's willing to do a a GIS study for me to confirm that way we can at least see could these stones have been moved is it consistent with the way that the anthropologist and archaeologist I spoke to specifically said this is probably how it would have happened can we see evidence of that Um, or do we see maybe the burials facing west actually with their inscriptions We don't know yet, so I want to be able to prove that one way or another. Um, I also want to continue searching within the community and see if I can find any more resources. The records from this section are out there somewhere. They would have gone to the Sons of Union Veterans. We are still working to track those, so maybe they exist somewhere. Mm. Maybe I can talk to someone who knows something about this. Maybe someone from the prison camp maybe has some stories or their grandchildren even at this point.
0: Well, Sarah... um Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day here at the 2023 UCF Student Scholar Symposium. Your presentation was amazing, Thank you. and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. I definitely enjoyed producing it. I enjoyed attending the event. I wasn't so sure if I was going to get all the history research projects. That was my goal, and I did it. And... And a lot of the, a lot of the credit goes to them. They could have easily just said no. Um, they weren't interested, and they all said yes. So I greatly appreciate again, Marena, Julia, Glenn, Cameron, Jacqueline, Joheim, and Sarah for talking to me and sharing your work, your incredible work because not everyone gets accepted. It's an application. you have to apply to it. It goes through committees. And the fact that they were all there that day presenting, it clearly shows that their projects were, were worthwhile and significant. And and that, and that's meaningful. I was a presenter last year for a solo research project I did in History and Historians. And this year I also was a presenter, but with a team, the Wells Built Museum of African-American History and Culture. We created a video um, that's, a spoiler alert, uh, planning to do a podcast with the team because that's another incredible class and research that we did. Throughout all of last year and finally finished in the beginning of this year. So that's a little sneak peek of a future episode. Starting with the next episode, it's going to be a series of Operacion Pedro Pan episodes. I'm very excited for everyone to listen to these episodes. These are up there as one of my favorites uh, because of the subject matter, because of the people I was able to talk to and, and connect to. By the way, this all happened in the same week. Uh, so I went to the student symposium. Then Was the Operación Pedro Pan event and the two kind of overlapped over two days. I mean, it was just an incredible week of history, of podcasting, of content. It was great. So I'm really excited to be getting these episodes out on all podcast platforms. Again, if you have missed the news, yes, nice history cast is on all places. People get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, you name it, we're there. So please subscribe, follow, and listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all on the next episode. Thank you, everybody.